Welcome to the Virginia Economic Review podcast. This is Stephen Moray, president of the Virginia Economic Development Partnership. I'm delighted to kick off our series with Amy Liu, who is the vice president and director of the Metropolitan Policy Program at the Brookings Institution and the Adeline M. and Alfred I. Johnson Chair in Urban and Metropolitan Policy at Brookings. Today, we're going to be talking about the future of economic development, how it is changing, how it should change, as well as some of the implications for those shifts for recent projects like the notable Amazon HQ2 project that recently announced in the Commonwealth of Virginia. I hope you will enjoy the conversation. There are many things you've worked on that have gotten a lot of coverage and a lot of discussion in the economic development community. But the one that has really resonated the most with me and that I know you've done a lot of speaking about, not just in Virginia, but elsewhere, is this notion of kind of shifting from a somewhat antiquated, shall we say, attraction-heavy economic development model to more of a balanced sort of multi-mode attack, uh, if you will. I'd love to hear you just kind of share in broad blush what that really means to you and, and how you see it kind of playing out in the country right now. I do think that the traditional definition of economic development or the traditional perception of economic development, highly focused on branding, marketing, and business attraction, is becoming a dinosaur of a model Mm -hmm. that is not responsive to the demands of the modern economy and honestly doesn't reflect the way a real regional economic system generates growth, wealth, and opportunity for all its residents. I see an evolution happening in economic development, and I think it's really promising. And I think we need to see more of the evolution to come. So what should economic development then look like if it's not about branding, marketing, and attraction. And again, it's not to say that those things aren't always going to be part of the toolbox, but we have to have a broader toolbox. The first is, what is the purpose of economic development? And when you think about marketing, branding, and business attraction, you end up with metrics around job creation and investment and capital invested. And yet, we think the purpose of economic development goes beyond just jobs created and just capital invested. That the real purpose of all of our collective efforts should be to put our communities, our regions on a trajectory of higher growth over time that comes from the increasing productivity of your firms, your workers, and your industries that ultimately increases the employment and incomes of everyone in your community no matter where they live. And it is that dynamic system of innovation, of human capital contribution, of our industries constantly being dynamic and inventive, and having more people and more firms participate in the economy that generates ongoing growth. And growth that is successful ought to be organic, that we create the conditions for long, term wealth creation, not one that is driven by short-term transactions. And so economic development should really be about putting, creating the conditions in which people and place and industries continue to thrive and innovate. So getting the purpose is really important. The other thing then, if you listen to all Mm -hmm. that, it's about making your people and your industries more productive. Then it also implies that economic development should be primarily focused on 
your existing base of workers and firms first, not constantly looking for opportunities from the outside and recruiting from the outside. In fact, as all the statistics show, the bulk of job creation comes from your base of existing firms um, because they incrementally add jobs over time. We also know that if you constantly look, look at recruitment and not look at the base of your existing firms, you also risk exits. You, you aren't paying attention to the needs of all the companies you may have brought into your market and what they need to, to stay in the market over time. So what that means is really focusing on the real drivers of economic growth, and that is around innovation ecosystems like entrepreneurship and R&D commercialization, helping existing companies adopt new technologies so they can grow or sell products abroad, making sure the infrastructure is in place to connect workers to jobs in a productive way or that they can get to global markets. And absolutely, it's about talent. If there is one lesson on the Amazon HQ2 or what the Amazon <coughs> as the symbol of the future economy and the symbol of the industries we all want is that the innovative sectors, the knowledge sectors of the economy prize everything that was in that RFP. The ability to produce a technical workforce, the ability to have infrastructure choice, including infrastructure that connects you to global markets and global talent, sustainability, walkability, high quality of place. And the last was diversity, openness, inclusion, and a diverse workforce. If those are the conditions that matter in the knowledge economy, economic development needs to have their eyes squarely focused on that. And I think one of the things I heard coming out of Amazon is if there was two words that came out of, that the economic development industry learned was talent and transit, right? Absolutely. The focus on your homegrown assets, the focus on creating that ecosystem of growth then makes attraction, branding, and marketing a lot easier. If you don't have those assets, what are you marketing, right? What case do you have? You got to focus on the product and that product is Absolutely. all those assets in your community. I love that vision. You and I talked about this many times. <laughs> one, of the, one of the reasons we invited you to talk with us today. Um, one of the things we've also talked about a bit is that while there are a number of places in the country that are really forward-looking and have really embraced this right off the bat. There are a lot of other folks in economic development leadership roles who absolutely embrace the vision but struggle to get their funders mm -hmm. to embrace it as well. So while the kind of prescription that you've laid out clearly would be a compelling way to build diverse, growth-oriented, dynamic economies, it is something that would sort of build over time. And one of the challenges that so many of the funders, whether it be state legislatures, you know, city councils, private sector investors that are putting, you know, money into regional or local economic development groups, will often want to focus on, quote, wins, right? Largely jobs and capital investment. So what do you think we could do to help to better position our economic development leaders to have the context that would support that. I mean, I think your speaking about around the country has been really helpful. Yep. I think that in some ways, to your point about Amazon, one of the interesting things that came out of that was that this is not a big part of the story, but you know, they did not go to the places that offered them the most money. That is right? correct. In fact, they ultimately said that talent was probably the single biggest factor. And it was clear that many of these other things you've talked about went into their decision as well. So in, in a way, even though it was a sort of mega project, the criteria they use in some ways reinforce the, the very things you're talking about. The reason I have uh, come to this conclusion about economic development is not just because I read a lot 
about the economic literature. The reason I've come a lot to this conclusion is because of the work we have done with economic development practitioners and leaders across the country in the wake of the recession. There is a light bulb going off in many communities around the country about how the traditional metrics of economic success are not only harder to achieve, but they also seem increasingly out of tune to the dynamic changes in the economy. And economic development professionals, like all of us, want to be working on something of relevance. Mm -hmm. And they want to be relevant, and they want to make a difference in their community. If deals in the pipeline are getting harder and harder to achieve, there's a lot of question now about then what is success for economic development? At a time when the only deals in the pipeline are fulfillment centers, mm. and fulfillment centers don't pay a lot of good wages, and those jobs are going to get automated over time. Mm. Is that really a win, right? When we have to re-educate everyone about what success looks like in the modern era, when there's disruption in the retail sector, when the manufacturing sector is leaner, and is not going to produce the number of job counts it once was. More capital intensive, yes, less people intensive. That it's all service-oriented mm-hmm. jobs now that dominate the economy, and that job creation now comes from what people produce and mm-hmm. the knowledge and ideas they bring. It is different now about how wealth and jobs and opportunity are created. So the wins are different. So let me give you an example. One of the things that we learned is by working with economic development professionals is a lot of the growth opportunities are also outside the United States. And I want to reinforce how global trade, even in these times and this policy moment, that overall we remain in a globally integrated economy. And our ties to suppliers and demand and customers around the world are being very much exposed now by the trade wars and the vulnerabilities. In fact, rural communities are actually the most vulnerable to the changes in the global trade environment. And it also reinforces why trade matters as part of economic development. And it's not about FDI. It is really about connecting our products and making sure our products are the kind of products that... And services. Yep, commodities, products, manufactured products and services are the kind of... that can actually compete on the global stage. So so there's a lot of awareness to the demand is increasingly international. One of the big stories uh, and, and sort of themes of your work, others at Brookings and, and, and others in economic development, has been sort of this growing divide between metro areas and sort of rural regions, and to some extent big metro areas versus the smaller metro areas. I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit and what you think that in particular those smaller places can do recognizing that there's a lot of sort of economic trends that are in favor of big metro areas these days? I'm going to answer that in two ways. One is to confirm the fact that the tech economy concentrates and divides. And all the evidence from our program and others reinforces the fact that the bulk of all the new knowledge jobs in the country continues to be captured by the same metropolitan areas of the country. And so in the last two years, for instance, literally just nine metropolitan areas in the country actually increased their market share of tech jobs. Mm-hmm. They're the usual suspects. So basically the superstar regions can, are continue to grab more and more and more of the digital growth in the economy. And there was certainly a lot of disappointment for the national observers that HQ2 
decision reinforce this, this divide, yeah. which is Amazon is going to continue to focus on Seattle, New York, and the D.C. metro area, while many of the mid-sized markets in the middle of the country, say Indianapolis, Columbus, Pittsburgh, Nashville got a piece of it, but mm-hmm. those markets that were contenders on the top 20 list ended up not being favored. So raised a lot of questions about is there a chance for mid-sized communities and even rural communities to prosper in not only an age of digitalization, but what I would call is age of agglomeration and concentration. Which largely favors bigger Yes. Places that have density of assets continue to accrue more growth. That doesn't provide a lot of promise for smaller markets and especially rural areas where the whole purpose and value of living in a small town is it's not crowded, it's <laughs> right, not right. dense, you know, and it, it is quiet. <laughs> right, right. So what I would say about that is two things for a state. A is embrace the agglomerations. We need to make sure that the large cities and even your mid-sized cities continue to excel in the factors of success today. And that with that agglomeration does come tensions of affordability and transportation mobility, and who benefits in inequality uh, growing in these markets. How do states give these growing sectors of the economy the tools to continue to innovate, but be, so to be centers of innovation, but also centers of inclusion. That is the real test, I think, for economic development today, is that the economic development field should not be a source of greater division in our communities. So inclusive innovation, inclusive economic growth, really, I think, is the vanguard of economic development. Then the question is, what are the prospects for smaller communities in the state that do have assets and do have companies and firms? I think that one of the things that we have learned at Brookings Metro is that rural counties that are near... Bigger markets. Bigger (laughs) market centers. Right any kind of town center or a county seat or even a metropolitan area do better than those that are completely isolated. So what that says to us is how do we strengthen the connections between rural counties and urban and suburban markets? It is not realistic to save every small town in rural America. But what we can do is make sure that a rural resident or a rural entrepreneur can travel 30 minutes, 60 minutes to a job, to a bank, to an investor in what would be considered a reasonable commute. So that is access to them. So how do we, how do we leverage that proximity? So to me, the best strategy a state could have is to make sure there are strong urban centers, even if they're micropolitan areas across the state so that every single rural county can access a job center, a banking center within a reasonable travel time. And because I do think most rural areas would rather stay rural, right? That is their culture, that is, they chose that lifestyle, but they wanna be able to at least access some sort of opportunity. So that's one. The second is that we have been so struck by how many rural counties depend on trade, that economic Mm. development and is so important, uh, the connections to global markets continue to be so important as a lifeblood for rural areas. And so that does mean 
uh, continue to facilitate those connections and continue to help existing commodities producers, small companies, family-owned businesses to have the tools to continue to innovate, mm. to apply R&D, maybe find talent so they can stay where they are and do what they need to do. It's funny. I mean, all those things make great sense. I think especially the notion of kind of those urban centers as nodes of economic strength and resilience within those regions. When we uh, were putting together our growth strategy about a year ago, one of our big goals is to help position every region to grow. And we deliberately did not choose every locality because of these, these varied trends. And that the reality for individuals is not so much that they have a job, you know, a block over, but that they have access to a good job within a reasonable commuting distance. And it sort of makes the whole thing more manageable. And then, of course, all the amenities are really regional amenities, whether it's retail or healthcare services and so forth. Those things are largely supported by that regional population. I did want to follow up on something you said. Is your belief that, that tech will basically, I don't want to say not be in rural areas, but that essentially rural areas are going to be a, a very small part of the tech sector story in the U.S. because of this agglomeration effect? First, I'm going to say there is no such thing as a tech sector because everything is kind tech. Kind of everything. Now. Everything <laughs> is tech, including yeah. ag tech. Yeah, right, right, right. But what I do think it means is that this economy prizes people more now than equipment. That as things automate and as things digitalize, it puts even more preeminence on the people to oversee the systems, to yeah. design the systems, to understand what machine learning can do for agriculture and what data analytics can do to make your company more efficient. That takes knowledge. Knowledge is density of people and talent, and they tend to flock and work in more urban settings. And so the question again is, how do you connect more remote businesses to that talent as resources, as mentors, as peer learning, even if they are in remote locations? They shouldn't be isolated from those, those resources. But that is the future. Now, one of the things that I find really interesting is having talked to, I don't want to exaggerate, but let's say 100 tech companies over time about what they really care about. It's not a talent. talent. Yeah. Talent, talent, talent. Yeah. But what's interesting is I, I, a couple of years ago, I wrapped up a, a study of uh, kind of higher ed and labor market nationally. And, and what you find is that basically in every state, there's an undersupply of tech talent relative to yep. demand. Now, it's obviously bigger in yes. a place like California or here. But um, these are kind of recurring gaps, and they've been there for years and years and years. What do you, what do you think it's, is holding us back from kind of better meeting these, uh, these talent needs that are out there so, in the country? Um, I think the technology is occurring faster than the educational systems are adapting. So we need to accelerate that. And it's why you're starting to see coding schools and other sort of non-traditional institutions emerging into the marketplace. And yet the challenge, while all that is great, the challenge about the non-traditional is your Pell Grants can't be applied to them. That they have to find additional non-traditional assistance for financial aid for probably younger students to participate in that. And they don't scale because it's not part of a university network, right? right? Our traditional providers need to do something more because tech is everywhere. So what do people say when I need tech skills? At the entry level, so one of the things that we have looked at is the fact that everyone assumes tech means one thing, yeah. engineering yeah. and four-year and master's mm -hmm. degree, while we certainly need more engineers. But a lot of the jobs in tech today require someone to not have a four-year degree. That two-year degree is sufficient. So for example, 
a computer systems architect, 50%, over 50% of those occupations are two-year degree or less. A computer systems designer or, a, oh, you know, like a computer support worker, right? We all call like 1-800 or ITS for computer <laughs> systems help, right? Those don't need two-year degrees. I think almost half of those jobs are mostly two-year and under. So we need to focus on a mid-tech workforce. I would love to see more K through 12 and two-year institutions working on basic computer literacy and computer mm -hmm. program and data basic data analytics. There's a case to do that really across the curriculum, right? Yes. I mean, even history majors, you could make a case. Yeah. The, the sort of digital literacy or... As the work that we have done shown is that if you looked at 90% of all the occupations in the United States, all of them have rapidly digitalized. Only one-third of jobs today require someone not to use a computer at some point in their day. Only one-third. The vast majority of jobs require some interface with the computer or some use of some technical skill. And, you know, I hear stories now about prisoner reentry programs where folks who are now preparing to return for society who've been out of mm. society for five years, think about how the technology has changed. They're now being retrained on computers because you can't work at a Gap store now without knowing how to right. use Square. Right, right, right. You know, there's no, cash registers don't exist anymore. So even Not basic... Smart, yeah. Policing, retail jobs just are uh, coming more tech enabled. Are much more tech enabled, and so I think there's something about basic computer literacy, digital literacy, Adobe, Microsoft applications, um, so on that people need. Then it gets more specialized, and I think this is what's so interesting. We were, I was in a meeting in a region where they said architects and engineers are a huge part of our ecosystem, and we have a high LQ in this, and we are losing workers. Hmm. But architects and designs, like all workers, have specialized software they use. Right. 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 And they just said, yeah. right, we actually just need workers that know this design software. Well, who trains people in the design software? Well, we don't know. So they went and actually partnered with an institution to create that. And so that, I, that goes back to as you go to what your, your industry sources, is which software really matters. Right. I think part of the answer, by the way, is that for the traded sector jobs, the reason the wages don't go up more is that they'll just choose to do it somewhere else. It's one thing if it's non-traded and it's healthcare and it has to be delivered here in the metro, which to some extent is even changing. But... But if it's software development, they, you know, they would like to do it in a particular place. But at some level, if they can get roughly equivalent talent somewhere else, they'll go there. Again, I think what's so interesting is that um, when you look at national statistics, they so belie so much of the variation that they hide what's really going on. And so we have continuous job growth. But we have showed in some new analysis released right before the holidays that the bulk of jobs being created in society today are mostly low-wage jobs. Yeah, right, right. Which goes back to just because you created a job doesn't mean it's a family-sustaining wage. So a lot of the jobs created today don't come with benefits and don't pay um, a family-sustaining wage. So that's one. The second is the tighter of the tightening of the labor market has, has increased wages in recent years. But if you break it down by race, as African-Americans enter the labor market, Yes, their employment rates are going up, 
but as they're entering the labor market, the wages are going down. And the African-American wages are going down. And mm-hmm. so that raises a question about, are the African-American wages going down? Is it going to labor market because only low-wage jobs are available to them? Or is it because they're not skilled to enter into better first-time jobs or jobs? There's something broken there, but their wages are going down. And in a lot of communities where the African-Americans are continuing to be a larger mm-hmm. share of the population, that should be a concern. Shifting gears, HQ2. You've written a lot about this. Obviously, I've spent a lot of time on it myself the last 14 months or so. Um, You've had a chance to see what Virginia and New York offer to the company to secure the project. I'd be curious, any feedback you'd have or just reactions to the packages, to either just Virginia, if you like, or Virginia and New York? Well, I have not read both of them very closely, so that would be my Mm -hmm. one caveat. But I think on the surface, I definitely applaud Virginia for putting together a response to the HQ2 opportunity in a way that is not just about subsidies. And in fact, the subsidies were not Mm. the kind of (laughs) ripoff that most people were worried about. Uh, Certainly much more reasonable than what New York offered. In many respects, Virginia took a little bit of the sting off of any of the criticism about its package. The other thing I I thought was very smart about the Virginia application was the focus on the talent pipeline. That it didn't unlike other applications in general across the country. It didn't offer an Amazon-specific solution. It actually Mm -hmm. said, we're going to commit to producing a technical workforce across the state over this 10 to 20-year period so that this location, your new home state, will continue to be a source of talent development for Amazon or other tech companies. That was super smart. And the investments actually go into, so you matched the subsidies with investments in the ecosystem, investments in the institutions that are going to last in the community. So I thought the Virginia response actually reflected the future of economic development. Well, you had an impact on that, so you may not realize that. (laughs) Your, your, uh, Your role in our, it was, it was in the, I guess, the few months running up to when we got the Amazon proposal. You may recall we've been very engaged talking about this new model of economic development yes. in which talent development has kind yes. of a central role. So we should give you some credit for that. Oh, good. Um, what do you think? Glad I could help this, a little bit, yeah, but no, you guys you did, did a lot of sure. good thoughtful work. Is there anything that stood out to you? I realize you're still kind of digging in, but anything that stood out that we could have done differently or better? What I would say now about what could be done better is really more about what you do from here on out. Mm-hmm. What I think would be very interesting is for the state of Virginia to A, make sure it carries out its vision. And that itself takes a lot of work and leadership. So I hope you carry through on that. Um, The the talent development vision? The talent Mm -hmm. development vision Mm -hmm. in particular, Mm -hmm. partnering with the local communities around affordable housing or Mm -hmm. any additional Mm -hmm. investments to remake the area so it is pedestrian friendly, (laughs) the transportation locational improvements, the innovation center, Partnership with the region will continue. And I, I will assume that because I think Arlington and Alexandria do look to the state for leadership. Which is new, by the way. You know, The, the other thing you had an impact on was this notion of regional collaboration. I was going to go there There's next. never been one before, I'm yeah. told by the locals. This is the first time they'd all worked together. There was a lot of effort to have D.C., Virginia, and Maryland apply for HQ2 separately. It was said that this was something that Amazon wanted. And despite the separate applications, 
the two states and the district all gave the impression of a regional celebration or response that no matter yeah, where did, yeah. no matter yeah. where it landed we would be happy we are a region that acts as one there was a joint statement across the two governors and the mayor around the decision very one very shared in the celebration how do we continue that commitment mm. and the reason i say that is because it's going to be really clear that the impact of amazon hq2 will hit the district and potentially parts of maryland i believe it will be concentrated in the core. Mm-hmm. Um, I be- but I also believe that there is a lot of aspiration about Amazon being an opportunity creator. For the region. For the region. Yeah, I agree. And everyone talks about the fact that 25,000 jobs are kind of a drop in the bucket for the wider metropolitan area. But since you mentioned Enrico Moretti, you would mm-hmm. know that Enrico Moretti says high-tech jobs create bigger multipliers than traditional jobs, four to five. And so we are talking about anywhere to 125 jobs, additional jobs, not just in the region, but what I would say is in the the urban core of the district, Arlington, Alexandria, Fairfax, perhaps parts of Prince George's County and Montgomery. That is the core. And that would mean housing choices, transportation, but talent. Who works in these jobs that are being created by the tech economy? How do we make sure that the benefits and the challenges, they Mm. will be regionally in scope? How do we make sure the benefits are shared? I would, even though there's a lot of attention on Virginia getting it right, you all now have a platform to be the convener of your peers (laughs) in this region to say, co-invest with us. Well, we're fortunate, you know, in addition to the ideas that you put forward, um, I think the Greater Washington Partnership and the Council of Governments have both become very constructive kind of yes. contributors to this notion of regionally integrated um, thinking mm-hmm. uh, about mobility, about yes. the tech talent pipeline, yes. about other areas of shared interest uh, in economic development. Yes. Um, you know, it's funny, if, if the RFP had had you know, a six-month application period to prepare it versus six weeks, we might have partnered more with D.C. and Maryland in the first round. We were always interested in doing it. Part of it, just practically speaking, is there just wasn't time. We were going to need so much just to pull our own stuff together. Recognizing that Virginia really views this sort of really multi-sector tech focus as our biggest growth opportunity from an economic, traded sector economic growth perspective over the coming years. If you could pick one thing that we get right, in the next five years, what would it be? Statewide. Yeah. I think the answer is that talent is at the center of economic development and that the state commitment for improving the talent pipeline across the state should uh, be considered a down payment for additional action and that it shouldn't just engage Northern Virginia, but it really needs to be a way of empowering the other regions to also contribute to that tech pipeline. There's a lot of pressure for tech to be more broadly shared, both geographically and demographically. And so you now have this opening to spread this innovation capability and opportunity to more parts of the state and to more people in your workforce. And the question is, how do you do that with intentionality? And that is really about the state creating these partnerships Great answer. 
Well, this was really terrific, Amy. I can't thank you enough for doing it and being for our kickoff interview. <laughs> uh, I enjoyed I the think conversation. It's going to turn out really well. We're really looking forward to uh, continuing to work with you and continuing to follow the great work of Brookings um, across the field, but in particular in the metropolitan area. Well, Stephen, uh, congratulations on 2018, and I think 2019 is going to be a really exciting one. I think so, too. It'll be hard to top last year, but uh, we're off to a good start. This podcast has been brought to you by the Virginia Economic Development Partnership. Thanks for listening.